Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while bows return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my all-knowing mental parasite, Scott Daly. Welcome. Couched excitement. Ready to start podcast. Slightly tired, though. Didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Ah, uh, uh-huh. Not right now. Annoyed. Anxious. Wants to start the show. Not sure if this joke is working. Uh, Scott, why don't you tell the good people what we're doing on the show this week? Good people. Lying. Secretly hates That's all That's quite them. enough. Sorry, sometimes I just can't turn it off. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of focus-tested costumes, giant fucking eagle pets, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we are covering chapters 10.9 and 10.x. It's the, it's the tattletale interlude. Yeah. So first, Victoria and company head to meet with the advanced guard, Matt, and that goes about as well as you would expect. Uh, we have a, a, a delightful conversation with two of the best characters in this <laughs> in this this whole story, side piece and disjoint. And shortcut is predictably a total asshole. Yep. Then it's surprise, surprise, the tattletale inter- interlude, the long awaited tattletale interlude, or as I like to call it, one of the most depressing things I've read <laughs> in a long, long time. Matt, what did you think about these two chapters? Yeah, I, I love these. There's there's a lot of uh, different tones that we're that we're getting in these chapters. I'll put it that way. We get the um, delightful side piece part. Uh, we're gonna talk plenty about about why that's enjoyable. I think, and then you know we're very excited to get a tattletale interlude, but that excitement kind of curdles into a kind of dread by the end. Yeah, and I know, like, Wildbo is not writing these chapters in preparation for us covering both of them in a single week. Like, that's not how this works. But it does feel like the delightful, funny nature of the side piece conversation is kind of, like, mentally preparing us to just be depressed for <laughs> for the entirety of the next chapter. Um, because the Telltale Interlude is, like, a, a lesson in how to write um, a, a chapter that makes you empathize with the terrible horrible existence that a person is going through Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's uh there's there's a lot of there's a lot to talk about there's a lot of um a lot of feels a lot of feels in these chapters there's so many feels and i think the chapter does a fantastic job of of getting you to the place where you're feeling all those feels let's do it which is which is a really great way of describing that. Let's let's do it. Let's get into this. So first uh, announcements. Uh, once again, a reminder that fan art contest number five, Happy Holidays from Earth Gimmel, is on. Entries are due by Monday, December 17th at midnight Pacific time, and the winners will be revealed on Christmas Day. Yay. So get so, those entries in. Yeah, yeah. Get, get drawn. Um, check out, as always, we leave the official rules and description and everything in the show notes for each and every one of our uh, shows while this contest is going on. So if you haven't checked those out yet, they should be right there in the show notes. So click that and go. And uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's move on into the community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. We have the discussion question, which was the anti-parahuman sentiment has grown ominously in the background of this story. Highlight another instance of Wildbow letting a story element grow quietly in the background before eventually bursting into the narrative foreground. Um, you know, we've had similar questions that were more along the lines of like an example of foreshadowing. And mm-hmm. and 
you know, I, I thought maybe this question would be too similar, but but seeing everyone's answers, I'm happy we did talk about this because these are all there's so many things in these stories where it's like a story element that's not just not just foreshadow. I mean, it, it is foreshadowing, but like it's it's built up so slowly and, and in so many different ways that I think it's it kind of exceeds what you think of when you think of normal foreshadowing. So, yeah. And, and I like what you said about like, I mean, it's in the background, like it's. Mm-hmm one of the things that I think makes the world that this book exists in and both these books exist in feel more real is that, and I think we've talked about this on, on worm before things are happening to these characters in the background. When, when the camera of the story is not pointed at our characters, they're still doing stuff. And, and often it, we see just like the edge of it. We don't see the full, full, you know, nature of, of what the characters are doing and, and the experiences they're having in the background, but it's still there in the background. So I think that's, it's a really cool thing that makes the world feel more real. And I think that is, you know, fundamentally a different kind of thing than just foreshadowing and setup. I think it's something that lands a lot harder when it lands too. Um, so yeah, let's get into some of these responses. So first mm-hmm. from Kayakin, uh, they suggest the source of parahuman powers in worm as, as the story element that was built up. This is kind of the big, major one right yeah yeah <laughs> it's kind of what everyone thinks of um and 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 that they say that um basically discuss all the ways in which this is woven through the story we have the basic fundamental question of where do the powers come from and then many kind of subsidiary mysteries like what's up with the manthan effect why do all the powers have some application to violence uh and they emphasize bonesaw's interlude actually as a crucial point where we see just how much the powers can distort the minds of their hosts i thought that was interesting to pull out because that's not something that I like remember as being um, impactful in that way, but they're absolutely right that, that it is. Yeah, this was a great answer. And Kayakin, you don't uh, you don't answer our questions that often, but when you do, they're always great. Yeah. So you should you should do that more. Yeah, I command it. <laughs> <laughs> um, next up, we have King Bob twelve, who highlights Alex's little story from arcs one through 11 stuff like knowing he's a murderer, eventually finding out about a secret power culminating in his amazing and horrifying choice to run shadow stalker out of town for Taylor. That's a really great example. That's something that's like, it's really just hanging out back there and you don't realize how, how much of what he's going through until he makes that choice in his interlude, we get to him and he makes that decision and, and it's like, Oh, this has been here the whole time. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of these things are are just to editorialize for a second, like the difference between what I think of as normal foreshadowing. Like normal foreshadowing is like um I mean, I'm 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 mixing my story ideas here, but like normal shadow foreshadowing is like you have the gun over the mantelpiece and you draw attention to the gun and right. the audience is like, "Okay, there's a gun, they're drawing attention to the gun, the gun's going to be relevant." But there are so many things, especially when you're doing a reread, where there's like there's there's probably like 15 different things in 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 what you learn about Alec where they attention is not drawn to them they're just facts about Alec but they they are all part of this puzzle when when you when you reread especially you see how yeah. they all fit together and it's just, it's just consistent world building really is what it is yeah it's it's um an author having a clear you know a clear image of the character's arc and the character's personality in his head. So even if he's not consciously trying to, to foreshadow something in the future, um, it, it all ties together because this is who this person is. So a, a thing that he says in one random chapter is not specifically 
said with the intent of setting something up, but it's just part mm-hmm. of part of the exploration of that character. Yep. Uh, so, yep. Next, Funderfulness points out how we saw whispers of the Inbringers long before they showed up, which culminates in the sirens blaring and letting us know that this ominous thing, we don't even know what it is, but it's here now. Yeah, I remember that that moment, right? That realization where you had, we had these this word, you know, thrown around a few times, and everyone reacted very negatively and like, "Why are you even talking about this?" And mm-hmm. then it's suddenly it's here, and and I just I love that moment because the scope of the story just expands suddenly all at once, and it was it was kind of set up that way mm-hmm. um, through these little little side conversations about Endbringers and yep. and people freaking out about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Number Wang Man <laughs> suggests Kenzie's traumatic history with her parents and how it's slow played. We know from the get that there's something off with her, but the foreshadowing is just layered on and it only becomes worse somehow when we see how normal her family life seems during the first part of Vicky's visit. I like that a lot because like I think, you know, going through we there was something always off about Kenzie's parents, right? Like we knew we kind of knew a little bit about her situation and then we met her parents for the first time and, and we were just like, what is this? I remember the her dad's a robot yeah. uh, theories that were abounding that way because they just acted so strange. So there's this like this this underlying just current of something's off with this family dynamic and uh, and it, it helps pay off that moment, especially that. I think they're absolutely right that the first part of that dinner, the fact that it plays so normally when you're waiting for it to be so weird, like throws you off so much. And it's because of that, that like slow play undercurrent fed into her her family dynamic throughout the early part of the story. Right. And this is one case where the story, the story is not really playing coy with it. The story is basically saying like, yeah, there's, there's something off here because the main character, the the point of view character is like, what is going on here? You know? And, and so like, you can't help but wonder what's going on. So it's, it's more of a, of a explicit story mystery than just like, um, uh, subtle foreshadowing in the background. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is that too though. Um, yeah, cool. Data snake 69 mentions the undersiders falling out with coil, specifically the fact that several arcs of Taylor seemingly struggling to get her territory locked down to impress coil is ultimately just a distraction. So Lisa can execute operation fuck coil. <laughs> that's a great one. Operation yeah. fuck coil. Yeah, no. And that's one where like, again, you're, you're seeing the pieces put in place, but not even realizing that's what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Qualis DLP settles on Taylor's journey on working together pre-Slaughterhouse 9000 arc, her transformation from an authoritarian do-as-I-say skitter to, to persuasive do-as-I-do weaver. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, that's I like that a lot. Yeah, because that, that's more of a, you know, that's more of an element of like a character changing slowly over time where right. the story, be, be, like Taylor doesn't think too much about the fact that she's evolving as a character, but we, we are witnessing it. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things that that having a first person narrative kind of lends yourself to be able being able to do very subtly. Right. Because Mm -hmm. people don't often notice changes in themselves, in their personality. Like it's 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 the kind of subtle thing that you are probably not going to notice when your personality has changed, when you've changed over time. But um, you can you can lay the breadcrumbs as an author to let the reader see that, even if our character is completely ignorant to it. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like that. Int Scoot brings up the um, blowing of Taylor's secret identity uh, because basically 
it's always a thing that's, that's at risk, and then Dragon f finds out what it is relatively early, so we know that it's coming for quite a while before it actually happens. Yeah, they, that, that bomb was placed under that table for a long, long time, mm -hmm. and it did not explode until much later in the book than you think. Mm -hmm. um, especially when, and I still argue this, I still think Dragon comes off as super scary the first time we meet her. I'm still convinced of this, uh -huh. and, and it's not until much later in the story that we learn, oh, she's not that bad. Yep. I don't think a little baby person inside of a robot when it explodes <laughs> is something that's supposed to endear you to the character. Yeah, no, it's 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 a baby, so it's sweet and cuddly as it yeah. as it burns and screams. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, Sarah Penguin discusses the merchants and how we gradually learn more about them through many different avenues. We learn about the economic situation in Brockton Bay that creates an environment ripe for villains and henchmen to rise up and accumulate power. This sets up the rise of the merchants when Leviathan smashes the boardwalk and makes the situation even worse. That's a really great one. Um, the merchants are kind of this group that is is exactly that. It's in the background. We hear about them a lot, but we don't often see them except for, I think, that one meeting, right, uh, in, the, in that bar earlier in the uh in the in the mm -hmm. story um yeah but they're kind of just played in the background and they don't come to the forefront until we go to the mall and we're actually having that that merchant's conflict but, yeah right but it's all been set up in the background yeah and even when they're in the first meeting like kaiser won't even let them sit at the table with everyone else because they suck so much <laughs> yeah yeah so, uh cal subalu v2 brings up a great part in twig where uh and and then uh, yeah, so that was that was awesome. That part in Twig. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, there's this happens. This kind of thing happens in Twig too, Scott. Cool. Maybe I'll read that one day. Yeah. All right. Next up, Stelhex kind of goes in the opposite direction and names the relatively minor threats in Worm that aren't heavily foreshadowed before their appearance, such as the fourth or fifth Endbringers. I like this a lot because this is kind of taking the uh, the opposite. Um, the opposite track and it's like saying well there, here's here's some threats and some things that were laid in the long term but here's some stuff that just wild well, through a curveball and I think that the end bringers are absolutely that we set up these three that we we have kind of our triumvirate of uh, protector capes and, and we kind of match them with this this triumvirate of giant monsters that we can't kill and you kind of think that that's gonna stay that way right yeah. especially after you've killed one of them and it's like yes we right. did it um, and then, yeah, it's such a curveball that, oh, so nope, there are two more. It's just yeah. going to keep getting worse. That's why it's such a gut punch is that you've just killed the one and the response is now there's two more. And it's like, that's the perfect time for there to not be any warning. Right. And I think that's a really important moment, you know, in the book, too. I think that's the moment where you kind of start to realize, oh, um, this is not going to be the type of story you thought it was. Or, mm -hmm. or rather, this is the story is not going to end the way you thought it, it probably would when you sat down to read a superhero story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, things things are getting worse. Yes. Uh, Wanson or Juanson calls out Cauldron as their example, the existence of Cauldron, what Cauldron is. Uh, they, they mentioned there's a reference to selling powers on Parahumans Online as early as Arc 1, I believe. Um, and then we start to learn about the K-63s later on and we begin to wonder where they come from. And uh, once again, there's kind of a bunch of trails or breadcrumbs that all lead uh, us to understanding what Cauldron is. Man, that's a really good point, because it's not till after Leviathan that we first learn the name Cauldron, right? Um, I think it's the the, the mall attack mm. with the merchants that we first see the vials and get the papers that say Cauldron, I think. I might be wrong. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, we see K-63s before that, but we don't really understand that there's anything to even wonder about necessarily until... 
Right. Um, yeah, I forget what order things happen in, frankly. But uh, yeah. It's um, been so long. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Up next, we have Tassarwat, who describes how Taylor's willingness to do whatever it takes. The whole story is basically an illustration of this. But Tassarwat points out two key moments. First, when Callie lays out her crime, she's like, yeah, I did that. But there were totally reasons. Second, when she speaks to Alexandria and we both see how they're similar and how Taylor hates her. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting, like, I like the other question pointed out, like Taylor's, um, Taylor's change from kind of authoritarian into a more cooperative person. And this is focusing on Taylor's, um, propensity to kind of cross every possible boundary and, and escalate in pursuit of, of what she thinks is right, which, which is always present in the story, but you, you can actually read this whole story without like noticing it as such. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think we talked about that a lot as yeah. we were going through. I mean, that that kind of was your original experience with the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's and I guess that's why it qualifies as being something that's slowly building in the background because the story never like looks at it. And and I think the cool thing about that too is I think you know there are people that read the story and and didn't really dive into that aspect of Taylor until they went through their second read. There are people. I think the cutoff point when you realize this, these facts about Taylor is different for every single person that, that reads a story um, based on your own like internal sense of, of right and wrong and your own and your own morality. Um, mm. the, the point where you're like, Hey, Taylor, hold up is different for every single person. And I think that's to me, that's the mark of a good story that, that, that your personal, you, the way you approach the story changes how you see it a little bit. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. It's it's uh, yeah, I can kind of go on on the idea that like the the shooting the toddler scene for me wasn't like a huge red flag. It was just like, yep, this is par for the course. Moving on. Um, anyway, Matt, Matt, it was a toddler though. Yeah, but it, she was saving him from. Uh, anyway, but she shot a baby in the head. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I I, I know. Where <laughs> it's a baby? You got shot. You know, did it. you know, it's possible to read too fast. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, Jojo, 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 eight sing- <laughs> singles out the Seamurg specifically. Like we talked about the Inbringers before, but this is the Seamurg specifically and how we get hints uh, that various people may have been Seamurg victims, but we don't know what that means. Uh, for a long time, uh, and as early as Arc 8, we get a reference to winning the battle but losing the war, even though Z's herself doesn't show up until Arc 17. Man, that's a great point. I, I love, like, there's so many of these these big, important players in the story that are just kind of subtly set up. They hang out in the background, and I think that's what makes it feel like, you know, we talked about that there's sometimes where the story just throws a curveball at you and something happens you didn't you didn't expect at all. But there's also moments, like... I think one of the reasons why another reason why this world feels so believable is because you have these things in the background sitting there. So when when Cauldron rears its its head, like it's not, oh, here's a new wrinkle in the world. It's like, oh, here's something that ties together all the wrinkles that we didn't quite understand yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 makes it feel like a natural evolution rather than I'm just introducing a new story element in the, the 11th hour because I don't know how to end the story. George. Mm-hmm. <laughs> George Martin. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. All right. And finally, we have Placid Platypus, who mentions Noel, who is literally growing in the background for most of the story before they literally burst out of the vault to become a big threat. That is that is the literal answer to our question. Yeah. So it is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually the one we were looking for. So you you win. <laughs> um, all right. Let's get on into the chapter discussion. All right. Let's do it. So 10.9 begins with Sveta once again setting our teeth on edge by wandering around outside of her suit, searching the area for the remains of Kinsey's camera drone, along with the rest of Breakthrough. She does grab Victoria by accident, but not hard enough to take down the force field. And we have this little exchange, Sveta saying, sorry, and then, my fault for getting too close. Keep it up, I called out. My fault for getting too close. Hmm. <laughs> Phrasing, Victoria. There's, there's no setup going on there. This uh, th- this is such a great opening of this chapter, Matt. I think we've been I think the community as a whole has been collectively white knuckling our way through every single Sveta chapter and every Sveta interaction and reaction for the past couple of weeks now. And we start this chapter off with this. I, I love the writing here. Sveta was out of her armor and her tendrils flicked out with enough force to crack ice and send the hard crust of snow flying overhead. As she approached, one of her tendrils whipped out and caught me, seizing my force field. There's so much like powerful, destructive language mixed in here. And, and, and it's only after a moment that we realize that Sveta is out of her armor by choice. And we didn't. It's it's it seems like we're just getting dropped in the middle of a conflict where something has finally gone wrong, and it's only after a, a brief moment we realize no, this was just an accident. She's supposed to be at we're, we're we're okay. I think this is one of those strengths of serialized storytelling that's kind of rearing its head again here, Matt. Um, Wildbo is able to get immediate feedback and reactions from the community as he's writing this thing, so he knows. Going into writing the opening of this chapter, he knows that people are like have this this anxiety around Sveta, right? He, he knows that the, the, the community reaction is like, oh, my God, what's going to happen with her? And I mean, he knows that because he's intentionally setting it up, but also he's able to like gauge the response of it and know how much of it is working and when to kind of like push that button again. And I think that that's that's what this opening feels like to me. It's like we're intentionally pushing that button. We're reminding everyone of, hey, um, Sveta's not doing so well and something could happen at any moment here and we just don't know what it, it's, it's, it's just, it's just reminding us of that tension as we dive deeper and deeper into this arc. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've been lately paying a lot more attention to, or maybe noticing a lot more when, when Wildo actually goes out as a way to describe something because like the, the Sveta getting into her suit thing is, is, um, not something that we've seen a detailed description of. Right. And, and in fact, in, in the past, I think like anytime she's done it, she's done it in private. And now she's doing it in front of Victoria, um, which may constitute like her changing her attitude toward it because she may not think that it needs to be done in private. But in, in, in either case, it, it says something that we're seeing it now and that we're getting description on like a little bit more detail on how her suit works too. Like the fact that she kind of has to like, latch herself into it and then like bind bind her kind of coils oh, yeah. together to, to to make like a neck and it's like okay well it it makes you it, it's it's subtly reminding you how all this works and also giving you a little bit more information about how it works and and um how the suit works and and that may be knowledge that we end up needing yeah i mean i i think you're absolutely right and and i love 
I think we're going to really dive into that language of the the suit because I think it's doing a lot of very specific things and I and I I love it so much. But you're mm-hmm. right, like there there is a reason why it is now that we are getting that explanation. It, it is now that we are spending the time to really dive into what this looks like when she gets in the suit. Um, that's important, and and I, I, I it's, it's wonderful. It's really good. Yeah. The one other thing I want to focus on here um, before we move on is, is how this opening kind of serves to almost, I don't want to say dehumanize, but, but like, like almost like remove Sveta from any kind of existence at all. Like she's not only, is she not a person like Victoria can't even see her. Like, like she's, she's just like, she's only detectable by the loose ring of whipped up snow and flecks of ice than by anything else. The only way Sveta is seen in these early moments as she's like, like, tendriling out and, and searching for things is just by the destruction uh, across the surface she she uh, she carves mm-hmm. and, and I think that's again very specific wording very specific um, you know tension building ideas around this character right yeah yeah exactly it's it, it kind of reminds me of the um, the beginning of arc eight of worm where it's it's all of this violent water imagery yeah but it's actually referring to a crowd it's it's like it's planting these verbs in your brain like seizing cracking um sending snow crust flying overhead violent imagery uh, in a safe setting Mm -hmm. but it's still implanting those feelings in you yeah yeah and and you might not even notice it right i mean like i don't think i don't think you have to consciously notice that uh taylor and and tattletale's push through the crowd is using like pushing through a tide, like a wave of water imagery to, to, to connect those beats in your head as you're reading. Like it doesn't have to be a conscious thing. Yeah. It is just doing this, this unconscious work of, of making you feel a certain way about things as they're doled yeah. out to you. And it's, it's really great. Yeah. I think it's one of the real highlights and strengths of these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it kind of puts you physically in that situation, I think, is what it does. Like in that case, it makes you feel a little little bit claustrophobic, a little bit pressed in on, which which is what which is what you should be feeling for that chapter. For for this one, it makes you feel like, I don't know, something's about to like lash out and rip your arm off. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Which which is what maybe you should be feeling here. I don't know. I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see. Um, So. Next, we have Rain and Tristan having a hilarious back and forth where Tristan is complaining about it being cold and then Rain is making fun of him for it. Yeah, this is really funny and I like it a lot. But I'm also doing this thing I've noticed where I'm like, I'm like studying Tristan and Byron and everything they say. Like the, the text does this really smart stuff talking about stuff going on in the background throughout these chapters. These two brothers are switching a lot mm-hmm. and we'll like and, and the book almost doesn't call out when they've switched until they speak up like yeah like capricorn says something and, and victoria goes byron um then capricorn says something else a few minutes later and, and and victoria says tristan now and and it's just like it's just happening and and so like you're you're, you're kind of watching these interactions and, and watching rain you know chide tristan here and in the back of my mind i'm like what would an old version of these characters like an, an older version 
that hasn't made the progress they've made, would they be really resentful of each other because of this? Like, I, I could see a version of Tristan that's like really pissed off at Byron now because Rand's writing him about this whole thing because it makes him feel weak. It makes him feel insecure. And he gets really, really mad and he takes out that anger on his brother because that's kind of what he does. Right. And I could also see a version of Byron who is like really annoyed by Tristan's grandstanding here by his whole, um, you know, I, I'm switching, but not because you told me to because I want to bullshit. Right. I, I could see a version of these two characters that actually take this one situation and get really pissed off at each other for it. But I can also see a version of these characters where like Byron just kind of rolls his eyes at his brother's ridiculousness. Um, we have moments earlier and later in the chapters where like Byron says stuff and, and Victoria points out that he sang it in a small voice. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking like, oh, is Tristan going to be like annoyed at Byron because he's not being assertive enough or or is is he going to be an elevated form where he's just like, oh, it's just Byron being Byron, you know, like I think I think I see the fact that these characters are like switching out more regularly and, and seem so much more in sync makes me believe that the things about each other that really drove them crazy, they they're able to at least process them a little bit better. And maybe that's just wishful thinking. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it could very well be that the Tristan is actually under the surface, really pissed off here. And and, and things are just going to get worse with these characters. But but I think that's what I it feels like. That's that's what's happening here. Yeah, it may be it may be wishful thinking, but I um, definitely feel like things are better between them. Like the attitude that I'm kind of I- interpreting is that they're they're in all these different situations and they're basically thinking like, well, maybe Tristan has something to add here or, or, yeah. or maybe he's made some observation and then they switch out and then Tristan hangs out for a minute and he's like, well, this is Byron's time anyway, so I'm going to switch. And, and like, they're just, they're, they're being generous toward each other, which, which is like a huge deal. And, and that's, that's how I read it. I mean, you kind of have to, uh, I guess what I, what I would say is like, where where we left off with them was them reaching this this forgiveness and this peace and it wasn't it wasn't perfect but yeah. it was a it was a an olive branch and and them like meeting in the middle and and understanding each other a little bit better maybe and that that was where we left that was where we left off with them right so yeah. i'm just going to assume that's still where we are you know unless unless we get another big like capricorn drama moment yeah we, i mean which absolutely can happen like yeah. anyone else in the story their problems are not over just yeah. because they've made some progress um mm-hmm. and, and i think we're gonna probably see that in the future but yeah right now it feels like okay we're we're a little more in sync now these two guys and and that that uh, I'm, I'm looking at things to make me feel good in these chapters <laughs> matt because there's a lot there's a lot that doesn't yeah um i like how so victoria literally crosses her fingers hoping that sveta will find the camera um, because and she also references the thousand flag thousand flag grab trick that Sveta used before and that she's using yeah. now, which is just interesting that she's calling back to that. Um, so like she's, um, she's stretching out the time that they that they have to search, even though they have people who they need to meet because she really thinks Sveta like needs a win. Uh, but then Rain ends up finding the camera and. Victoria and and I think us two are like, well, you know, rain kind of needs a win too. Um, yeah. But isn't this kind of the dilemma in Victoria's whole situation? Because don't they all need a win? Like mm-hmm. at all times, I feel like every single one of these characters is going through so much that they need all the wins they can get. 
and there just might not be enough wins for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're just kind of forced to be like, okay, well, uh, well, Rain, you know, he got his win. And, um, and well, this, I mean, this is like the whole reason we're doing this is hopefully to give Kenzie a win too. Cause we give her, her, her camera back and she doesn't have to start from scratch. Um, but, but like they're forced into a situation where they have to prioritize this because everybody needs wins all the time. And I, I just, it, it's, it's just like, oh, it's these guys. Like, yeah. Just give them all wins. I wish they could all have, I wish both rain and Sveta could have found the camera. Yeah. It's not quite spinning plates because it seems like, you know, Capricorn and, and rain are like on an upward trajectory at the moment. It seems like Kinsey is at least kind of stable, even though she did have to go into foster care. I'm less certain about what's going on with Ashley. Um, but Sveta is the one who like it's pretty much ever since Weld left, it seems like she's been unraveling. Yeah. And, and and I think I think that's what this camera search is and is is Sveta's dilemma in microcosm, right? Mm-hmm. Like she needs a win in life. Like not just with this camera, like in general, but she's not gonna get one because that's just that's just not that's just not what's in store for Seta right now I yeah. think this is it's not a specific setup but it's like a tone setting for how things are going to go for Sveta as we go forward is that is she going to get the the wins she wants and I, I think the story is saying not, not anytime soon right I mean this this is a really minor thing but also like Walbo could have had Sveta be the one to find the camera right but he chose not to because yeah. the point is you're not going to get your win just because you need it. That's not how exactly. the world works. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and surviving this world means being okay with the fact that you're not getting those wins. Yeah. 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 I do wonder. So so she basically says she's prioritizing her team because her team needs this and she's going to be late to this meeting with the advanced guard. I wonder if she'd be as like as willing to be late to a meeting if it wasn't these dudes that she doesn't like at all. Like if it was any, it was meeting with any other team, you know, like maybe that's unfair to Victoria, but like, I'm just wondering is like, would you be willing to be so late if it wasn't the world's worst asshole shortcut that you were meeting with? Yeah, that's kind of funny. I think that's actually pretty interesting to, to think that maybe Victoria's a few percent more passive aggressive than she thinks she is. Like <laughs> yeah. she, she wouldn't think that's why she's doing it. Right. But no one ever thinks that they're an asshole. <laughs> I'm sure Shortcut thinks he's the nicest person in the world. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's very interesting to think about. Yeah. So we learned that Weld and Crystal are supposed to get back later tonight, this night. Uh, And this prompts Sveta to fantasize about Weld coming home and getting to talk to him and then getting to snuggle with him Case 63 style. Yeah, this is this is this adorable, wonderful moment for Sveta. But it's it's, you know, contrasted with the fact that she just was denied the win that that Victoria thought she needs. Right. So, like, I hope this reunion with Weld is everything she wants it to be. I hope it's it's, you know, what she needs and what helps her through this difficult time she's having. But I can't help think about that lack of a win and and question, is this going to be what happens for Sveta? Right. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be how it works? And one of the things you, you kind of hinted towards earlier in the show that I want to dive into now is while this whole conversation is happening, while this is taking place, Sveta is getting back into her body. Like you said, she's, she's, it's something we've never seen in the writing before that the wild bow is now zooming in on in this particular space. So she's having this conversation. Um, she's making sure again, Victoria is okay. So, and then we have all this very specific wording 
as she gets back into the body. Like the, the clasps cinch tight around her neck. She thumps against the confines of the suit. She has to make sure her tendrils don't get pinched. The suit, by its very nature, is this constraining thing. And and, and it's it's a little I appreciate the irony and that that Sveta probably feels most comfortable and most free when she's in this confined, constrained situation. And I was thinking about that. And then we move to this this beat where she's talking about um, her cuddle session with Weld and how he does this thing where he like grabs her by the head and then like pushes her into her. And she and it's like he's like tightly like there's a lot of pressure. And I think that is a, a different example of the confined nature that she feels most comfortable with, like both in and out of the suit. When she's in the suit, she's confined and, and has pressure from the, the suit controlling her. When she's with Weld, he he puts this kind of confined pressure on her that she likes so much. And and that's really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of those really heavy blankets that are supposed to make you feel like really uh, uh, relaxed. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that's that's that, that's really interesting. I don't have much to add other than I like that. Uh, I didn't make that connection. That's cool. But I also I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And that you said that the, the, just the the technical information that the book is sending to us about the details of how Sveta's suit like functions, I think, could be just important, you know, groundwork. We're, we're telling you this now because it's going to come into play in the future. Like we're getting a lot of reminders about how, you know, Sveta is held back by this thing and, and and some of it is described like some of the clasps on the outside of the suit are described as just mundane clasps, right? Like the, the only thing between Sveta and possibly accidentally killing someone about about like drawing or crossing that line she was unsure of where to draw on the first chapter of this arc is just these mundane clasps that, that could break. And, yeah. and we just again, this is this is the book reminding us of these things. And it's just. I'm scared. Yeah. I don't know if you ever like consciously or like explicitly talked about the nature of the suit, but like it's, it's almost, it's almost funny when you think about it because it's, she, she can get herself out of her suit whenever she wants to, but, Mm -hmm. but only by using like complicated multi-step actions that she needs to use her prosthetic hands for. Right. So like her shard presumably constantly wants to get out of the suit and kill everyone around her, but can't because it's too dumb basically so (laughs) it's it's so it's it's literally literally just trapping her by virtue of the fact that her shard is not smart enough to manipulate her hands you know yeah yeah that's that's really interesting i like that a lot especially in these two chapters when we're kind of talking a lot about the shard as an independent entity right like i think that's that's one of the big thematic beats of of Tattletales chapter is the shard as this almost third person in in the story. We have us the reader, Tattletale the the point of view character, and then the shard as this other character in the mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that. that yeah, we got a lot to say there. Um, yeah, so Sveta checks in with Victoria over whether Ashley uh, reached out with the lockpick thing last chapter uh, because. Basically, is it because Kinsey eavesdropped and suggested she do that? Or was it just straight Ashley, you know, being solid? And Victoria thinks it's the latter. So what do you think, yeah. Scott? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I I think it's interesting either way. And I think it like I think it's it's much more revealing that that Sveta is conscious of the fact that it could be this when she like 
like we said last week, I don't think that this the Sveta Ashley conflict is done. I think there's there's more that's going to be going on here between these two characters as we continue to kind of journey through the Sveta hard time part of the book. Um, but I, I I wonder I wonder like which Sveta would prefer, right? Like if if Victoria had gone to 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 Ashley and been like, hey you know, Sveta's upset with you, upset with, um, with, with like the, some of the things you've been doing. Is there any way you could like make her feel better or something? Um, that would show that people care, but it would also show that, that Ashley's actions weren't motivated by any kind of internal, you know, like observation or noticing, but also like there, it's a possibility that Ashley like didn't even wasn't even conscious of the fact that Sveta needed a win. Like you could, you could definitely view this, Hey, unlock this trunk as Sveta's version of, or as uh, Ashley's version of, Hey, this girl needs a win, right? You could view it that way, but you could also view it as like, Ashley just needed the trunk open and she was the easiest person to do it. So she said to, to do it. So right. I, I don't know. Like I, I, I honestly don't know. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see where, where that conflict goes based off of this information. Yeah, right. Like, um, I can put myself in the position of, of like, if I don't like someone and then they basically like show me something I didn't know, the, the petty part of me is like, oh, so you're better than me in this way too, huh? <laughs> like, it's not a, I mean, it's, right. it's a shitty attitude, right? But it's, it's human, I think. So and we don't, we don't see, see Sveta do that here. At least she doesn't verbalize it, right? No, she doesn't um, verbalize it. And, and I mean, I think we have a lot of evidence that she has like a good heart, but it doesn't yeah. mean that doesn't mean that you can't resent someone. I think. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think the great thing about Sveta is she's at least conscious of the resentment being not entirely rational. Mm-hmm. Like that's one thing she says when she does, when she does go about voicing this kind of stuff, she always, you know, you know, cages it with, I understand that this doesn't make any sense. I understand that this is bad to think this way, but I can't, I can't help it. And and I think that's someone that's very in touch with the way they feel. And that's, you know, comforting in some level. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you still worry where that can go. Yeah, absolutely. So after this uh, Sveta interaction, the team meets up. Um, Rain, you know, has found the camera. It turns out that it's pretty busted up, but at least Kenzie has the parts now. And the team goes to meet up with Shortcut and Sprite, who have captured Sidepiece and Disjoint. And we get the most delightful <laughs> interaction, and we just love side piece so much. Yeah, uh, fuck you. If we if we did titles of our episodes, like "fuck you" would be the title yeah. of this episode because I think that that phrase is said about seven hundred times in this chapter. Yeah, side piece is a lot of fun. I, I don't think there's a lot to say about her like analytically, but I just like the the, the writing. I think is so great. Um, her voice is very distinct, and it's not just because she says "fuck" a lot. I mean, that's part of it. It's great, but I, I think I think like you can tell Wildbo enjoys voicing this character coming up with with this character and, and having them play out in these situations there's a lot of flavor to her dialogue that makes it very unique and delightful this is a, a character that's different from a lot of the other characters we've seen in this story so far and i just i just enjoy her so much yeah you know there's one thing i wanted to draw attention to which is that uh the text specifically references her having a uh really obnoxious level of vocal fry in yeah. her speech um which made me realize like I don't read I don't read voices like 
I, I don't synthesize the sound of voices when I'm reading. Yeah. Like I know what you mean. I just read it. I, yeah. So like it, it, a few times, especially when it was mentioned specifically, I would like read her dialogue and then like imagine it being said with a really annoying Valley girl vocal fry <laughs> and be like, ah, yes, that's even worse. So that right. was fun. And, and the text is kind of going out of its way to draw your attention to that, where it doesn't always do that. Right. Like there's not not every line in this book has very explicit instructions to where how this is supposed to sound. Mm-hmm. But it does here because it's a, it's a part of her character mm-hmm. and it, it, it enhances the whole thing. Yep. There's also this little bit that I did want to zoom in in on, like as she's going on her F-bomb journey, um, Sveta just kind of says, there's a kid here. And side piece's reaction is, fuck her, fuck that surveillance state, fucking tinker bullshit, unblinking creepiness. And this is funny, um, but part of me wonders when you read something like this from side piece, how much this sentiment is echoed, not just by the villains in general, but but all of capedom. Yeah. Like Kenzie is this person where she's like really awesome when she's on your team, right? Like, like she's so helpful to the goals of your team, but how many other teams look at what she does with a a really uncomfortable level of, of uncertainty? Like, I don't know. I don't know about this. Right. And and we get, we get like a very flavorful reaction here, but I think side piece, as we'll see a little bit later is, is also serves to be, a representative of a lot of the sentiment at large in this world. Like she's, she's a really gruff way of saying it, but, but we specifically talk about how she says the game is over. People are angry and, and that turns out to be absolutely correct. And we see a large group of villains who kind of are, you know, side pieces, thoughts and, and, and angers, you know, brought out to the mm. macro. So yeah. I wonder here in in this moment if if that's going to be something as well. How how many of these teams are cool with this? Both good guys and bad guys are cool with this this girl that just has this ability to just constantly surveil everyone. Right. And and she has high high visibility because she was on the right. TV show and all that. So like it it's kind of a double whammy for her. Um I I mean there's more to say about that I think, but I I wanted to emphasize like that uh, this is one of the many things in, in this pair of chapters that made me, I think for the first time really connect Kenzie and Tattletail together because like unblinking surveillance state creepiness is exactly what Tattletail is doing in her yeah. chapter. She's, yeah. she's doing exactly what Kenzie does except like, I mean, she's like literally sitting in the dark staring at a monitor, right? like it's, it's creepy and, and, and unsettling. And, and it's very similar to what Kenzie does. And they even have that interaction where Kenzie catches her. And we're going to get to that, obviously. But like yeah. the um, stuff like st- just the fact that the fact that side beats hammers on it in this way made me make that connection to, to Tattletale. Um, yeah. I, so I, I like that a lot. And I think that's that's really great because we see through the Tattletale interlude, you know, how empty of an existence that is. Right. And people. It, it, yeah. Yeah. It, but, but people also kind of resent her um, all knowingness. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, during the scene, shortcut is being a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is wonderful, um, just because like Wildbo puts breakthrough in this position where they're being yelled at by annoying side piece, but also like on the same time they're being yelled at by asshole shortcut. And then like 
annoying side piece is like egging on asshole shortcut. So they're like caught in the middle of this whole thing and they're just surrounded by people that are pissed off at them. And it's this kind of lose lose situation here where mm-hmm. no matter what they do, someone's going to be mad. And that's kind of exactly how it goes down. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think maybe you felt different, but like, even though it's a, even though it's like a, uh, a situation where there's conflict, I didn't really feel threat. Like I didn't feel like shortcut was going to fly off the handle. I didn't feel like the villains were going to like escape their bonds and have, and that there was going to be a fight. Like I was pretty sure that this was supposed to be kind of, um, light and, and we were supposed to be amused by short, by uh side pieces behavior. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean, there like there is conflict going on here, but you're right. It never let like it never rises to a level of like tension when you're like, what's going to happen here? Like something's going to blow up. Like I, I I didn't think I didn't think suddenly this this meeting was going to turn into an action scene. Like I never thought that mm-hmm. was going to happen. Right. Um. I I did not predict how it was going to go down in the end. How this thing was going to resolve itself. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it, this this is a light part of the the arc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just like this interaction where, uh, like shortcut is really mad and Sprite says shortcut. People don't like capes right now. Who are we supposed to be getting credit from? Everyone shortcut said, um, I don't like, I don't know. I just, I liked, I liked the complete obliviousness of shortcut and it's just so irrational. It doesn't like, it doesn't make any sense, but it's also an element of what we were talking about with the discussion question where Sprite is just kind of reminding us like, Hey, like remember both shortcut and the reader that (laughs) that there's so much anti-parahuman sentiment right now that like the very idea of heroes getting credits for their captures is in question which is a really kind of like a fundamental thing um to to the game and and to to the to like the very reason heroes do their hero work in the first place yeah yeah i mean and, and i think that's important to kind of establish here because we're about to go into a section where a character says flat out you guys are still playing this game and it's over. Like Mm. we're not playing that anymore. And if you keep behaving like you're playing it, it, it's things aren't going to go well. Yep. Uh, The favorite part is probably when um, side piece calls out his costume as uncool, causing Ashley to smile and then try to hide her smile. And then shortcut retorts that the costume was focus group tested. (laughs) It's, It's so fucking lame. Yeah. It's I mean, like can the, you, yeah, it's the lamest moment in all of their humans, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Your costume isn't cool. Y- yeah, it is. We yeah. focus tested it. It's got 47 cool points. Yeah. That's how focus group, that's how things are, like coolness yeah. is decided via focus groups. That's yeah, this, how it works, right? This came out of a corporate think tank, moron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so great because, yeah, I mean, the the moron in there is like, <laughs> such a high level of confidence in his rightness in this moment, right? Like he thinks he's right. He is absolutely a hundred percent convinced that the fact that the costume is focus tested means it's cool and will not hear anything, anything else about it. And, and that is shortcut. Like that is everything about him that we've learned throughout this book. Another character who's just kind of having this, this journey through the background. Um, and, and he's this kind of like, I think he's kind of like straight laced boy scouty type guy who uh, is never rewarded for behaving in that way and is just pissed off about it constantly. And, and, and that's kind of what we have played throughout here. Like he never 
nothing ever works out for him in his mind the way he deserves it to. And and it, he just comes off as so lame. Yeah. You know, we didn't we, we hadn't uh, pegged Victoria's uh, fashion police um, proclivities in the first arc. But I'm pretty sure the first thing she did when she saw his costume was talk about how try hard it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, and she gets a dig here as well. It's not like she doesn't say it out loud. Fortunately, like Victoria is actually verbally um, like very civilized to shortcut throughout this this whole interaction. She 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 thinks some pretty great digs at him but never actually verbalizes them Mm -hmm. and this is one of them like she she describes the the discs that intersect his costume as halloween knife headband combination that kids could pay a dollar for to make it look like a knife was stuck in their heads which is like a really sweet burn Uh um and and if she had said that out loud oh he'd be so mad yeah so mad Uh i love it um we also learned, Matt, that they made um, an Iron Giant 2 in this world, <laughs> which uh, is like a confirmation that this is the worst timeline. Yeah, right. Is I that- mean, Scion was right. Because, <laughs> like, burn it all. You know what? You know what Iron Giant 2 would be, though? Tell me. It, the government would make um, their own giant. They would, like, like study the giant and then make their own war giant. <laughs> and then the old giant would appear... To fight the new giant and there would be like this giant battle uh-huh. with with missiles and lasers and stuff, which uh-huh. would just miss the entire point of the fucking movie. Yeah. And it would be terrible. That's beautiful. That's exactly what would happen. Would the boy Hogarth right inside the chest of the Iron Giant like a mech? I mean, probably. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, you're right. You're exactly right. So Scion was right. There we mm-hmm. go. Yep. Confirmed. Ah, uh, wow. <laughs> Uh, so once again, we have like a pair of chapters that I'm happy to get as a unit because side piece says a lot of stuff here. And as you mentioned a moment ago, where like I would have blown past a lot of this if the later chapter wasn't there to kind of contextualize it because she's doing this thing. She's ranting like you mentioned about the cops and robbers game, how how it's dead, how it's been dead since the world ended. How uh, and, and, and then she kind of goes further and she talks about how the villains who aren't aligned with any major power with any of the major power blocks um, are going to get like shafted and disenfranchised and all this. And she's expressing a lot of discontent and yeah, like I would have, I would have just kind of blown past this and been like, yeah. um, Okay. But then we see that this is a widespread sentiment in the subsequent chapter. So I like that that's connected. Yeah, I completely agree. It's laying the groundwork for that villain riot, I think is what, what Tattletale describes it as. Um, I, I I can't wait to talk about that conversation. I don't want to dive into that too early here, but I think there's a lot going on there um, and I can't wait to get into it. So we'll just kind of put a pin in that. Yeah. All right. So Natalie finally texts Victoria back and lets her know that nobody cares about their collar uh, unless they've caught a major gang leader or have ironclad evidence of a major violent crime. They, they don't have anywhere to put them. Yep. And Victoria describes this as Wild West shit. And it absolutely is. Uh, looking back on it, the destruction of the prison was, I think, like the last vestiment of actual law and order when it comes to capes. Right. Um, after all, we have Damsel, Ashley and Rain, who were all prisoners. They're not in prison anymore. And there's been zero indication that that like cops are going to show up at their door and say, actually, you've got to go back to prison now. That's just not something that's going to happen anymore. Um, and and kind of we're seeing the the traditional 
role of the justice system go away. Um, so we're in this wild west now and the heroes are marshalling strength. But as as side piece kind of indicates here, they they are somewhat playing under the old rules, right? Like like they're still some of them at least are treating them as a game where like we get the collar, we get credit for the collar um, that helps us advance and get more notoriety. And, and you know, we'll put those bad people away. And that's just not the, that's like not the way things are working anymore. Yeah. Right. Like it's, I'm, I'm once again, going to mention the, the bit where, where Sprite's like, who's going to give us credit? Like not only does the, does the game break the the game breaks down from both ends basically when people people don't want the heroes to do hero work and people aren't willing to let the villains like get away with things anymore uh unless they're like aligned with some super villain boss like it's it's a i mean this has been set up for the whole story right but we're seeing kind of a new uh evolution of of this um this collapse right right i mean we have side piece here who's in custody she's been caught and she's admitting to murdering people right. now she's throwing the word allegedly into it but i mean that's it's ridiculous but yeah. she, she's admitting to a murder that she committed but it doesn't matter anymore and 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 you you get you get a large people of of people that believe this way that this stuff doesn't matter anymore and and that's trouble because you have you have one side uh, you have the the goody two shoes heroes that are still trying to live under this game you have the the bad guys who have basically said fuck this we're gonna do what we need to do to survive and 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 that's almost gonna like vindicate a switch of the heroes to where they realize okay we have to go no holds barred now and then that's just a disaster and that's kind of exactly where the next chapter leaves us is is a realization that that's that's where we're heading to now yeah yep and then there's there's this part matt Uh this kind of ties in what we were saying um we're talking sensible alleged cops who recognize that not that the only towns that have a shot at making it are the ones with protectors and not pussy focus sets as superheroes or asshole freaks like you all either actual make your enemies go away protectors and that's who we're talking about breakthrough the wardens the advance guard these are superheroes these are the people that have decided that they want to protect the people of the megacity protect the world um the, the question is when in a world where we can't detain these people anymore is everyone just going to start being okay with just disappearing them and 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 is that not just contributing to a cycle that is going to be bad for everyone yeah like i'm i'm wondering you know if this is leading back and maybe i'm reaching but like kind of leading back into the kind of cape feudalism that cauldron wanted to uh instantiate in the first place and and kind of that was their plan for basically keeping pockets of humanity safe as they as they try to survive in a post-scion world uh you know assuming assuming they could survive it um and like that does seem to be kind of a stable attractor state for the way that a parahuman civilization could could persist is is to have to have like vicious warlords who are going to be kind of godfather and um, actually bring some safety and stability, but also, you know, exploit their people probably. Um, but the thing is, there's this new element here, which is not something that Cauldron ever really addressed, which is the massive anti-parahuman sentiment. Right. Um, and I, I wonder, I wonder if they have a plan for that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. And I, and I like that too, because like 
that kind of ties into something I think we're going to talk about next chapter. Um, the after the end of the world, humanity rushed to recreate society as we knew it to basically rebuild and be uh, rebuild exactly the way it was before. And and we're seeing that breakdown because it just doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And and they're going to have to find a new form of existence. And the, the villains have kind of decided that it has to be in this this warlord sect um everyone's closed off everyone protects their own small group and and we disappear anyone that that has a problem with the way things are run and i wonder like i just i wonder if if what the book is going to say about that like what 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 the book is going to say about how a society truly rebuilds stability in a post apocalyptic wasteland like we're living in yeah so we'll have to see. Very interesting to think mm-hmm. about, though. So they let the duo of villains go, giving them the message to to deliver to Love Lost that Cradle may, may be coming after her. And I like how Victoria kind of like pivots this whole thing, right? Like suddenly they weren't there to take down Love Lost. They just wanted to talk to her. They just wanted to deliver a message. This was all just going to deliver her a message, right? We were not trying to defeat her and and take her away. We just wanted to deliver her a message because she's in trouble. And and, and it's like playing into side pieces, worry about the unaffiliated villains getting taken out and picked off by, by large groups. Like it's playing into that. So she's kind of, she's kind of bullshitting her here, but in a really smart way, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I don't even know if I, fully fully caught that but yeah i like you pulling that out that, that's interesting so of, of course the shortcut is really pissed off that they had to let the villains go um saying that they're not minor um and victoria in her head actually agrees with him that yeah they're not minor in her head though like she doesn't like i think victoria's viewpoint on shortcut is i'm not gonna say anything that pisses him off or i'm gonna try not to say anything that pisses him off but i'm also not gonna say anything that like tries to win him over anymore like mm-hmm. i'm not interested in any kind of future like relationship with you friendship or otherwise like i don't want i don't i don't <laughs> i don't like you i don't want to be around you i'm not doing nothing so she she does go through this really long like several paragraph long internal narrative to kind of to kind of say she doesn't like this is happening she agrees with him but like she understands and 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 tries to rationalize a way where hopefully this will be okay in the end because if we take out love lost like like most of these guys threats will will kind of solve themselves but yeah she doesn't voice any of that it's all in her head she just kind of leaves the conversation with shortcut being pissed off at her and she's not interested in any kind of olive branch with this guy anymore which good because He's an asshole and he's he's clearly shown that he is not going to let go of this silly grudge he has from one small moment at the beginning of the story. Yeah, I don't really have a problem with how she's behaving because she's basically no. trying to be professional and, and have a professional relationship with his team. And he's being childish about it. And the best way to respond to that is basically to ignore it, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then as they leave, we do learn that the one that the one of these two people that Sveta did not like was indeed Sprite. She was not talking about shortcut in that moment. Of course, she probably doesn't like him either. But um, Sprite you know, flies away and uses her tendrils. And she says, stealing my power without asking and then being better at it than me. And she's mad about that. She really, really doesn't like this guy. And so like. I wonder, like the first time they met, he did ask permission, right? Like he he said, 
I don't, I don't know if he had permission or he was just like, I'm going to do this. Um, maybe in his mind, he's just like, once I ask once, I don't have to do it again, which is probably not a good, a good like rule to have in your head. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing. I remember we talked about this back in that first chapter when he did it in the first place where, where I was actually kind of like, I can see why you would ask to be courteous, but also, um, what is, unless the thing, like I'm not a parahuman, unfortunately, so I can't, Mm -hmm. it's hard to put myself in that position, but like, why, why would it bother you if somebody borrowed your power for expediency's sake? I don't, I mean, I get that Sveta is sensitive about her power. Like that, that part of it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the, the the fact that Sveta is offended makes sense in in a in a, in a way, but like if I were Sprite, I don't think I would feel bad about borrowing people's powers because I would just be like, well, this, my power is to borrow powers. What do you want me to do? You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it just so happens that the two people he interacted with that first time are both people that have very serious insecurities attached to their powers. So um, both Victoria and Sveta like have parts of it that they don't like, and it makes them uncomfortable and. Um, they like, it's not something that I think he would like, I don't think he's like consciously being a dick about this. Right. I think it's just, I think you're absolutely right in his mind. He's just using his power. And why would you care about that? But, but I think, I think the, the, the part of it that really digs at Sveta to me is the being better at it than me part. Mm -hmm. Um, like she, she has shown jealousy of the fact that Ashley has these very functional hands that are indistinguishable from real hands. Um, here's a guy who has this thing that she hates, but has so much better control over it than, than, than she does. I think that's probably the part that, that really bugs her about it. Um, and it's not, like I, I completely understand why. Like I think, I think she's probably being a, a bit harsh. Like she said, I, I, she says like she she hates him almost. Like the, her her hatred of this guy is very very strong, um, and and he he probably doesn't even know. You know, like I mean, I don't want to like defend Sprite. I don't think that's necessary, but um, it's just kind of a, a shitty situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I mean I don't even feel like I'm defending Sprite. I guess I'm just like eh. I, I mean, I don't think he knows what he's doing wrong, right? I don't think he knows that it bothers her. So it's hard for me to feel too bad about it, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's hard for me to blame him too much if, I mean, uh, like, beyond the point of, like, it may, like, maybe he should pay more attention to the consequences of his actions, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder if that's, like, I wonder, there's probably not very many powers out there that, like, borrow powers, right? So, like, mm-hmm. does there need to be some sort of, like, universal understanding about the etiquette of that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, the, and the answer is probably maybe because like they're going to have some people that are just not comfortable with that. And and is that an invasion of their person? I, I don't know. Like that's that's a that's a conversation that that those two characters maybe need to have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it seems like it seems like this could be this could be sorted out quickly with a conversation between them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Um, it, or, or Sveta even bringing up the fact that it bothers her. Yeah. To him, you know, yeah. which she has yet to do. Yeah. 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 Um, so then um, I like that this chapter wraps up with them discussing how Tattletail accepted the deal they offered. Um, Victoria thinks that it's because it gives her tacit permission to keep doing what she's been doing. Um, it's also interesting, though, equally interesting that different team members offer different guesses as to what her actual reasoning was. Yeah. Like, I think someone says she just hopped up on pain pills and isn't yeah. thinking clearly. Um 
if only there's a way we could find out exactly what that reasoning is. Yeah, yeah, right. And the chapter ends with the pressure is ramping up as the hero teams organize. And I'm really curious to see how Love Lost, Tattletale and March all react to the current state of things. That's one of Wildbo's better segues yeah, <laughs> as we right. move right into one of those people reacting to the current state of things. Yeah. Oh, look who it is. 10.x. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like, man, my experience of reading this chapter, like psychologically looked like interesting. Who is this? Oh, it's Tattletail. Yay. We get to see how the undersiders are doing. Oh. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, no. Oh, Tattletail. It, it's just so bleak. Yeah, it really is. I, I, As I was reading this, I kind of started mentally comparing this to the pilot of Breaking Bad in my head. And, and that's a, a pretty big compliment from me because I think it's one of the finest pilots ever created, at least in the past decade or so. But... The structure of this chapter to me is like just like the structure of that pilot is um, here's a handful of ways in which you should feel really, 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 really bad for Tattletale. <laughs> like, yeah, like here's all the shit she has to go with. Here's here's the state of her mind and the state of everything she's struggling through. And it's all awful. And then at the end of all this awfulness, she's going to make a choice. And by the end of this chapter, you're going to understand why she makes the choice that she makes. And you might not feel good about it. Um, There's a lot of kind of discussion to be have around her decision to basically do nothing. And we'll get to that. But um, the text gets you to a place where you understand why she uh, she she is in the app that position um and 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 you kind of empathize with her and you empathize with that choice because things are so 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 bad for her that you understand why she would want to uh, make a decision that kind of pushes her possibly away from being involved with some of the things that are causing her so much misery yeah right i i i want to just go through this kind of step by step and see how all these techniques are employed because um this is it's it's amazing but it's like painful you know yeah yeah cuz you know we start out this chapter and we have this this person who we don't we don't know is tattletale immediately injured cold alone in the dark only illuminated by the glow of her monitor it's it's just like and, and it's the perfect way to open the chapter yeah yeah and, and one of the things the chapter spends a lot of time doing is 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 really establishing and and drawing an existence that is utterly alone like she's she's alone throughout most of her experience even when she's around people she has this feeling of 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 being alone and and this opening really emphasizes it i love i love the beat of the the plastic like the chemical hand warmer. I don't know if you ever used those things. It's just like this little, this little bag that like when activated, it just generates, it's a chemical reaction that generates heat. And it's this like, this like thing, it it works. Okay. Like it, it, it warms up, you know, the parts that it's directly touching, but like nothing else. Mm -hmm. It's just this, like this, like induced warmth that like, is this pale imitation of actually being warm. And, and it's, it's just this wonderful little, little beat in here that I, I just adore to, to set the tone of where this chapter is going to go. Yeah. It's like purely utilitarian. It lets her keep using her hands. Yeah. But, but doesn't bring any like real comfort. Yeah. Uh, there's something really forlorn about the way this is portrayed. She's thinking most of the mega city was asleep, 
But if she imagined the screen was a window that she could open and walk through, then there was a small festival happening just 20 feet away. And that's, again, reinforcing the emptiness, the loneliness of her existence. Everyone around her is is asleep. There is a place where things are going on. She's not part of it. And the only way she she can feel part of it is through this this window that she's created to this this outside world that she is she is not a part of like she can't open and walk through it. Like she can imagine that she could just open and walk through it, that she's part of it, that it's, that it's part of her experience, but it's not like she's just watching things on a computer screen alone in her room. She wants to go on. She wants to be involved in these things. She wants to be part of this thing, but she's not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. As you say, it's, it's showing by contrast, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, this, this is what she doesn't have. Right. Um, so I think it, it would be putting it mildly to say that Tattletale's relationship with her power has grown complex because it now seems to like supply her with something like context tags on the information it gives her and it responds semi-intelligently to her desires. Like she actually kind of speaks out loud to it. Um, on the flip side, though, she's more conscious of the kinds of information that it wants to give her and the fact that it doesn't give her headaches when she's in the field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really loved how Worm chose to express her power working when we got the Tattletale interlude in that book. And I love how we've like added more wrinkles to it here. I I think her audibly talking to the power, you know, shows not only like an an evolution in her relationship with her shard, but I think it also serves to accentuate her loneliness, too, because she's basically talking to herself. I mean, she's not. She's talking to this alien that's living in her head, but she's also like it's just it's just it's it's depressing it's another level of depressing on on top of this what's funny is like i I say semi-intelligently because like it's not like she gets any companionship by talking to it because it's so inhuman yeah um and like and it's not even really like she's talking to it because it's not responding to her like it's not doing what she wants yeah it's it's just like it's it's weird, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. And it seems to be pushing her a lot more than it did, or at least than I remember it in, yeah. in Worm. Um, it, she, she seems, I mean, she seems to have less control over when it pops up and when it doesn't, um, when it's going to say something helpful and when it's not. And she's, she, it's cool because she's more conscious of the fact that sometimes it's going to give her information that accomplishes its objective and not hers. And she's conscious of that and is aware of it and can plan around it. But it also just like, like we'll see in a bit where it just pops in and be like, it's like, Oh yeah. Remember, uh, remember your brother? He's, yeah. uh, still dead. That guy He's still, yeah. still dead. Just, just thought you, in case you forgot, still dead. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the most, the most obvious of the shards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> remember your trauma? Yeah. Yeah. Just thought you might've forgotten about that. So let me just, uh, let me remind you about that just to be, you know, just in case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think it is it is kind of an evolution of, of a person who, like, she unlocked the secrets of, of what they were, right? Mm-hmm. So two years have passed since that moment. And it, it makes sense that the relationship with this thing that she understands better than maybe most of the people in the world has evolved to be more complicated, um, and, and more of a push and pull and more of a battle. I think that that makes a logical sense in the world of the story. Right. Yeah. She's, she's much more wary of it, but also she is better at using it. Like it, it seems like she's much more conscious also of like 
the 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 way in which she can feed it intel and then get better answers out of it like yeah that's what she's doing here right like she she'll kind of like very systematically touch base with different people get get like reports from the field and then just rely on her power to kind of connect those dots together into the picture of what's happening yeah and you know she certainly wasn't doing stuff like that in like early worm maybe in late worm she was getting closer to that yeah, and she's able to stop herself and, and pivot, you know, when she starts going down a trail mm-hmm. that uh, is not useful or maybe one that has false positives in it. She, she, she seems to be able to manage that kind of stuff better. Um, she, maybe she has her own internal Brian. Remember, Brian mm-hmm. served that role for her to kind of catch her when she's going too far down the rabbit yeah. hole. Um, and she seems she seems to have a better handle on that herself. Um, but to, to come with that is this is this even worse sense of of loneliness of of misery of um like removed outsiderness from everyone else around her and it's awful it's awful mm-hmm. yeah so i mean speaking of continuing to like build the tone in this chapter um not just for tattletale but for the whole story like wanted to take a minute to talk explicitly about this setting that we've been painting in the background um cuz she's in this building that was built in a rush the plumbing is disastrous in some of these buildings. There's no insulation. Um, and then nobody moved into the area except villains who wanted to use it as a front. And like we've seen this kind of thing over and over in the story where there's there's this theme of all like all of the construction on Gimmel is is shitty. Um, a huge amount of the new construction is like not even used. There's places like the Lime Center that are being built in kind of like a panicked response to address a, an immediate need. Yeah. And it's just like it, it is this mega city is this huge area that's that's densely populated, but also it's just complete chaos. Like it's not no one's in charge here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this a lot. Like this story Ward opened up with Victoria looking across this landscape of buildings, this like giant mega city that existed now. And I remember like in the back of my head, I was kind of surprised at this. Like, wow, Gimmel has has built up, has become this giant urban center in a very quick amount of time. And the more we've we've like gone through this story, the more we realize that that's just an illusion. Mm-hmm. That that it's it's like Tattletale puts up to everyone around her, it's this like calm, controlled, organized looking thing that under the surface is a wreck. It it, it is exactly like like the the face that she puts up in front of people and and it's like they rushed to get this thing back to the way things were and they just did it. They just did like a, a surface level job and it's, it's not there underneath at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's teetering on the edge and this is just emphasizing. Yeah. I like that connection to, to tattletale cause it's like, this is, it, it's emphasizing that mood that we're supposed to be feeling right now. This right. mood of, of like everything sucks and everything <laughs> and, and, and loneliness and isolation and, no one is taking care of you. Yeah. Yeah. But she is taking care of everyone because he's, she's checking in on the various threats. There's currency manipulation. The sleeper is active. The machine army is growing. Seamurg is active in Indonesia of earth bet. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's going great, Matt. It's all, it's all fine. Um, I I do appreciate that we get like, as she kind of researches the Seamurg, she gets like a flash in her mind of when, back at the end of worm when the seamurg decided to make itself look like someone was hanging just to remind a tattletale of her brother, which immediately, like we talked about before, makes her power go, Oh him. Oh yeah. He's a, uh, he's still dead. Just it's great. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all, 
it's it's super um like the fact that she's aware of it like the fact that she is conscious of it i guess is good but the fact that like it's like she hasn't moved forward since since worm like she the 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 weight of her brother's death the weight of taylor's death or you know whatever happened to her uh (laughs) just like weigh like still weighs so heavily on her that that she thinks about it like when she's just going about her her daily work yeah well i mean regardless of whether taylor's alive or dead um she views taylor as uh, a failure on her part she views what happened to taylor dead or alive as her fault and she failed her um so I mean, that doesn't matter. But yeah, I, I think I think that sentiment is ac- exactly right. She's kind of stuck. And I think we kind of see that as we go through this chapter. We have moments where she's remembering, where she's seeing, you know, things in Chicken Little that remind her of Taylor, where she's seeing things in the heartbreak and heartbroken that remind her of Alec. She's she's stuck like she's stuck with the ghosts of of her, her past perceived failures. And um, it's overwhelming her. It's exhausting her. It's isolating her. It's destroying her yeah yeah it does seem to be so we have this moment where foil comes in and turns on the light and uh yay it's foil (laughs) and 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 tattletale pretends to foil that she thinks that this is like a friendly check-in but her power makes sure she knows that foil dislikes her and just wants something from her yeah this is i mean it's so Oh, it's so heartbreaking because like you have this like we start this chapter and she's alone and she's cold and it's dark and, and miserable. And then someone comes and you're like, oh, look, it's one of her teammates. It's one of her friends. And the, the book immediately goes like, nope, sorry, um, this person actually doesn't like her at all. And she knows it. And she her power is reminding her of it through every interaction. Um, and, and and I love how this is expressed. I love like it, it, this really sets up like the the cold calculated computer nature of her only companion which is her shard um where it says at relative ease but not happy history of past relationship with tattletale self strongly dislikes tattletale self like i love that the small little decision to to make the shard describe her as tattletale self like it's just it's just so cold like so computery i i love it so much yeah right because because you're because like we we talked about this earlier like it it doesn't say strongly dislikes me yeah and and try to make her think that this is her thought and it doesn't say strongly dislikes you and tries to enter into kind like a kind of relationship with her it's like i'm just objective yeah dislikes tattletale self I'm, I'm, I'm using the word self because I'm attached to you. So, yeah, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm clearly differentiating myself from you as well. Like it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Ugh. yeah. So just, you know, I, to kind of continue on this uh, string of kind of pointing out like what I perceive to be authorial choices, like it could have been imp that like checked on her, right? Like, like um, he could have arranged this scene where it was imp that checked on her or whether, whether it was any, anyone who has like a positive disposition toward her and would actually care about her. Yeah. But they're but not there. It's, <laughs> None the, of them are around. They're, they're not there. And, it, and it's foil who we know dislikes her. So like, it's just, it once again, just this element chosen to hammer home this like, yeah, well, even the people who are around you are just like want things from you and don't yep. care about you. Yep. Yep. So, um, we learned that Tattletail has taken a healing potion from Bitter Pill so that her gunshot wounds are healing more quickly. 
Yeah, and the story takes a, a fair amount of time to explain to us why this was like a, a really bad idea to do this. <laughs> that like um, that, you know, bitter pill is the type of person that once you owe her, um, that it things could go badly. Um, and, and I think this is, you know, serves to kind of paint the desperation of Tattletale here that, that, that she needs this so that even if even if the results of this are bad, she hopes that she can manage it. It's not even that she thinks she can manage it. She just kind of hopes that she can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah she's, this is another element of that, like desperation that we were marked on previous yeah. episodes where she's basically entering into deals where she's just like, whatever, I'll accept whatever terms, Yeah, you know. Trying to put on a show of strength, but actually it's like, yeah, we're on the run. It's I mean, it's the spinning plates again, right? It's it's a very similar to thing what she was dealing with in Worm. There's just like a, a ton more plates and whatever keeps this plate spinning in the short term while she can focus on other stuff. She'll deal with the long term consequences of that later. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we've made the comparison before, like I compared her to Kenzie earlier and I made the comparison before comparing her to Victoria. They both want to keep people safe. Yeah. They both want to do it by creating networks of information. Uh, they have different philosophies in some ways, but actually they kind of want the same thing. Um, yeah. Really cool if they could like be friends. Nope, won't happen. No, nope. <laughs> it could. Probably won't. Probably won't. Yeah. Um, so there, there, there's this wonderful little beat here that I wanted to highlight as as Foyle is kind of discussing the kid that they were trying to help through Bitter Pill and how that backfired. Um, and they decided that... Uh, they weren't going to go that way. And Tattletail says too expensive. And, and Foyle's response is, is your power telling you that? And the answer to that question is no. Um, it's just common sense. She says, it says common sense is telling me this bitter pill to temporary work, but that work could be a lot of things. But her answer, her verbal answer to Foyle is, yeah, my power did tell me that. And this yeah. is this is such a tattletale thing, right? This is something that she's we've seen her do over and over again. And I'm glad we're seeing it here again as she kind of leaves it open and up in the air of of what information she's gathered and confirmed via her power and what hasn't. And that, I think, is why, you know, she's so powerful and also why she like drives people crazy that are trying to take her down because you just never know. You never know what's bullshit and what's stuff that she's actually saying that's actually been gained from her power and i love that we kind of get to see that play out here in this point of view chapter absolutely especially when she's doing this to like her teammate (laughs) who i mean i get i get the teammate i get like foil isn't like one of her inner circle but she has no real reason to lie it's just more of this bravado like reminds me of taylor with the whole like image you know the image thing that taylor Mm -hmm. taylor was kind of fixated on tattletale is just as fixated on like I'm going to be I'm going to be infallible and all knowing even to my nominal friends. Right. Right. And and that and what that does is kind of just alienate them from her. Yeah. 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 And so there's one more bit here. I promise we'll get back. I'm going to stop going on tangents. <laughs> but um, something something got me thinking when they have this interaction and, and she says, no, I'm going to I I trust that I'll be able to deal with this bitter pill thing. And and foil says your funeral and her power kicks in saying dismissive word associations, death, ending, ceremony, strongly dislikes Tattletale self. And then the next thing Tattletale says is kind of like a lash out, like jerk moment. Like we saw so many times back when Victoria and, and Breakthrough were dealing with her where she would just like lash out and like dig at people where she's like, no need to apologize or anything. Not like I took two bullets because because of your whole psychotic rabbit girl thing. Imp lost an arm. And it got me thinking about like 
we see from an outside perspective that everyone's just having a conversation and then suddenly Tattletail just goes, and you, fuck you in particular. And you're just <laughs> like, whoa, where'd that come from? But but in her power, she's probably like constantly getting like she's talking to Victoria and her powers, but like probably being like, yo, this girl fucking hates you. Like she can't stand you. And she might be being civil in words to you right now, but I'm reading stuff through her facial expressions and through her body language. That's like clearly like drilling this fact that this person hates you in, in her head, in your head. And you like that's constantly happening. So you kind of understand where these sudden outbursts from her come from. Like, I think part of that's just her personality, but I think part of it is just her power leads to this. Like, like if you and I were having a conversation and I knew what you were really thinking about me, I'd probably be like, fuck you, Matt. No, 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 Scott. No, I'm sure that's not the case. Um, No, no, I I love, I love that you pointed this out. Cause like you basically could take, what Lily said and turn it from your funeral into like your funeral. I hope you die. Right. I don't like you, which like, cause that, and you know, you kind of have to ask like, is her power just feeding her like the negative? Um, I mean maybe, but also Lily probably has a lot of reason to dislike her. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Lily does probably just actually dislike her. I do think that the, that, that the shard is choosing in this moment to emphasize that and remind her of it. Like, like strongly dislikes tattletale self is a beat that we repeat over and over and over again throughout this conversation. It's like her powers like, Oh, Oh, by the way, this person, uh, doesn't like you. That, yeah. Did you, did you forget? They don't like you. It's just yeah. a reminder. They don't this, like you. This just popped into my head. Uh, Smeagol talking to Gollum <laughs> and, and, and Gollum saying, nobody likes you. Yeah. <laughs> What's happening here. You don't have any friends. Yeah. 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 yeah I like exactly. That. Yeah. Um, yep. Poor Tattletale. Uh, so it turns out that Foyle came to her and basically she says, we're all nervous, but you seem fine. I was hoping you knew something we didn't and you could reassure us. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, ah, Lily, you don't know her at all. Like, of course she seems fine. Yeah. She always seems fine. She's- she seemed fine during gold morning. Yeah. Um, but, but like what's kind of, kind of like stunning almost is that Lisa, responds to this by checking in with her mercenaries, like collating all the data she has access to, determining that March is out recruiting and won't be mounting an attack for at least six hours. And then she's like, okay, okay, foil, you and Saba can rest easy. It's fine. So like, once again, Lisa doesn't contextualize and say like, this is the level of danger we're in. She's just like, I'm answering your question. You can relax. You're fine. I'm keeping you safe. And, and in doing so, Lisa is now carrying all this weight alone. Yeah. And, and, and I think to, to kind of confirm that that's what she does, she literally expresses that she says, it's what I do. Um, and that is what she does. She, she takes all this on herself and she makes it and she, she rests it all on her. And the tragedy of this is she doesn't have to like, yes, she leaves a very lonely existence and and she's alone and her days feel empty, but she does have friends. Like she, she does have teammates. Like Yes, the people she's around right now don't care much about her, but there are people in her group that would consider her a real friend and actually do care about her on some level. But she needs to put up this front to, like you said, to be this person that always knows the answer, always knows the right thing to do, always is going to be the one people turn to um, to solve their problems because she she wants to be that person for everyone. And it's just it, it is it is so I said this word a lot, but it is so isolating. It is it is removing yourself from human experience and 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 
like removing everyone from you. Like no one knows what you're going through because you don't share it with anyone. So, yeah. so they can't, it, it is, it is a completely lonesome experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, we, we I think, I think back in, we've got worm. We talked about the idea that tattletale was like an enabler for Taylor and I think it was a two-way street because they both had this streak of wanting to take care of everyone and being completely like self-abnegating about it mm-hmm. and and sacrificing everything. And so they kind of egged each other on, but at least they had each other as friends to rely on and, and to commiserate with. Um, and I think that's like a big part of what of what Lisa's missing here. You yeah. know, I think I'm going to have to stop calling her Lisa because she doesn't think about herself as Lisa like at all anymore. That's, oh, that's very true. Yeah. She doesn't. I don't think. Do we use that? Do we use the word Lisa at all in this chapter? I'll have to go back and look. I don't think yeah, so. I, I don't think we do. I don't think we do. I haven't control F'd it or anything, but um, yeah. So we, uh, before she leaves, Foyle says, I appreciate this. Um, and and uh and and then Le- and then Tattletail thinks the information apart the words. Tattletail shook her head, denying. Th- and sorry, I think this it's got all fucked up. Sorry. The copy paste got messed up. Oh no. Um I don't even know what this was supposed to say. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I can look the, it up real quick. You, you know, well, you know, I, I remember the, the gist of it. The gist of it was that like um her power tries to take apart what Foil said and like turn it into not a thanks anymore. Like she doesn't mean it. And and Tattletale like shook her head like no no shut up I just I, and then she says it's it's what friends do Tattletale said though Lily had already left so like she's just trying to like accept the thanks and her power won't even like let her do it and then yeah it's just like completely like everything is stolen from the moment yeah I, I, that's that's absolutely what it is and and to tie into this moment um, the word Lisa is used once in the chapter Matt I just looked it up you know who okay. uses it Foil uh, okay well, she okay. says good night Lisa. That's okay. the only time someone calls her Lisa. And I think that's so tragic because, yes, Foyle probably doesn't like her very much on some level. Right. Like there's, there's she probably has some some antagonism towards her, um, some blame for what went down with uh, with Parian. But the use of Lisa, the, the only person who calls her by her name name. And, and yes, it's a fake name. Yes, it's not her real name, but it is kind of what she went by for a very long time. So it has by default become part of her identity um her power her power and and therefore her personality won't let her make this connection right like like so yes this person probably doesn't like her very much but even if there's a on a, a level on which lily wanted to form a, a a friendship with her um she can't allow that and she has to interpret everything in the worst possible way. It's like it's like being the least charitable to everything people say. Right. Like it's like right. it's the it's the worst interpretation of everything someone says to you. Yeah. The, the worst while still being basically accurate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the power is not going to mislead her, but we but it is biased toward conflict. Right. So so it probably is telling her the thing most likely to cause problems. Right. Like, I mean, there's this moment where she, where, I mean, Lily says, I am sorry that you got pulled into this. And that's kind of the thing that, that she's dissecting. She says she is sorry, halting words, phrasing, I am lying, lying. And it, it, it's like, look, she might 
on some level believe that Parian becoming a criminal is is Tattletale's fault. She might actually believe that. She might on some level believe that Tattletale does owe them because of what she did or, or the part she played in Parian's downfall. Lily might actually believe those things on some level. But sometimes, like, the decision to say the words matter too, right? Like, she made the decision. Lily made the decision to say, I am sorry that you got pulled into this. And even if under the surface, like, your your emotions are more complicated and conflicted about the person, you chose to say that to her, and you didn't have to. Like, she's already told you the thing you needed to know. She's already helped you out. Like, there's nothing in this interaction that says Lily has to, has to say, I'm sorry that this is happening to you, has to extend a kind of olive branch to her. Like, yes there's people are complicated and we often have multiple emotions winging through us about, about people at the same time. And it's just focusing on the bad ones. Right. And it's just right. like, it's so depressing. Yeah. Right. It doesn't say went out of her way to try to be nice, despite the fact that she doesn't like you. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. 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 So after she leaves, Tattletale turns back to the video feed of the heroes returning home and we see that Vista, Laser Dream, Weld, Golem, and others are returning home. Matt, I am now 100% convinced that Golem is going to be in the story within the next couple of chapters. And I am fucking here for it. But Rockhand's boy is back. And I'm, I, 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 hope, I hope he's actually... Yeah. I've been waiting to see what's up with this kid. And I'm hoping I'll see him before the end of this arc. I'm game. I'm ready. Uh, I do wonder who Stankbank is. <laughs> well, um, the name Stankbank, Matt, has very interesting connotations. So I'm sure that they're the, the finest of people. Yeah, I'm sure we'll find out. It's a butthole. <laughs> and apparently they were someone, like I get the sense there's someone that we should know, but yeah. by a different name. Yeah. But drawing a blank. Uh, she watches Weld and Sveta reunite. And she sees distance and uncertainty between them. And the text says, what did it say that she wanted them to fail? What did it mean? And where did that feeling come from? Was it strategic that it would get them off her back for a little while, make them a little weaker? Her power supplied nothing, and she wouldn't have trusted it if it had. This fucking shard, man. <laughs> yeah. The one moment where you could actually, like, clue yourself into some of your 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 own personality traits and the shard's like, eh. Nah, yeah, I'm not even gonna. Right. I'm not even gonna fuck with that. Yeah, can we do some introspection? No, no. We, don't, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't. We don't do that. <laughs> That's not what we do. Um, yeah, I, 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 there's there's a lot in this paragraph, like the jealousy of Weld and Sveta, and 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 I think we learn a bit, little bit. We learn by the end of the chapter. It's not like a romantic jealousy, right? We 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 learn at the end of this chapter that Tattletale is asexual. Um, so it's not like she's jealous that these people are in a romantic relationship. I think she's just jealous of people having people that yeah. pe- like that, that care for each other, just companionship. And we, where we've been seeing that everyone around Tattletale um, wants something from her or doesn't really like her, at least in her mind. Like, like we don't know if this isn't this is a, a truly accurate depiction of the world. But we even have like her biggest bodyguard that we learn. I'm jumping ahead a bit, but by the end of the chapter, we learn that her biggest bodyguard, like she doesn't even think really likes her. Um, he's just using her for status to, to like elevate her career. Um, and and it's just like 
she views she's alone and everyone and and anyone that has that kind of companionship she's jealous of and i think that's that again it's so tragic yeah do you think it'd be fair to say that she's become bitter like would that be an appropriate word yeah i think so a little bit yeah Yeah. you know because we only get kind of this one interlude and 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 the kind of a smattering of interactions with her that don't really none of the previous interactions disconfirm this idea that she has that no one likes her and that she's isolated and alone. So like we're kind of forced to accept that it's actually true. Yeah. Like it's not like it's in worm where I'm, I'm really inclined to doubt the protagonist's negative take on themselves. And it, it, it's like, no, I mean, she's probably kind of justified at this point. I, I think, yeah. But I also think like, I, I, people are complicated and, and you yeah. distill them down to one, like, like the bodyguard. Um, there's, there's another guy that helps her with the server that we learn about in a little bit that she says he pretended to be my friend and I let him pretend like that, like that might be some of what the person is thinking, you know, that, that might be like on some level an accurate statement, but that doesn't mean that's all that they feel about you. Like, yeah. it, it's like, I, I wonder, I wonder how she feels about like, like you could argue that, does Rachel care about Tattletail right. or is Rachel just using her? Like, I wonder in her, in her mind what she would think about that. Yeah. I mean, to, to speak of Rachel, like we're not like humans aren't Labradors. Like we don't, we don't approach all new people with like a completely open heart and, and desire to get to know their innermost core. Yeah. We, we can eventually get to that place, but usually it's through a path that involves us being like, I don't know this fucking person. Like, <laughs> right. I, I don't, I don't right. care about you. Like you have to get to the point of caring. Right. And it's usually like through a path of that involves some level of discomfort. Right. And, and a lot of new uh, relationships start at a transactional level. Like the, the reason yeah. why two people get together um, to, to accomplish something is um, you can help me with something and it can grow beyond that just because it starts that way. doesn't mean it has to be like, I don't think all my friendships are transactional, but I think like th- when you start, like when you, when you meet someone new and you start hanging out with them, there's probably like, you can provide me with entertainment. I can use you for, for X. And, and right. that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that's attached to that friendship. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it, but, but, as as we're saying, her power is so like reductive that it makes it yeah, seem like yeah. people are all fakers. Yeah, it's got Colden Holden Caulfield shard. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's great. Um, so before we move on from this, I wanted to ask you about the, the Weld Sveta reunion a bit here, though, um, because this has been something that the story has built up for weeks now. Uh, we've been kind of waiting for this to play out. Like Sveta has been, you know, visibly nervous about this interaction. Like Weld's coming home. Um, and the first time we get to see this, we're not in their point of view. We're, we're not mm-hmm. down there with them. We're in Tattletail's mind watching this from afar. Um, now, it's possible we will, could loop back and see this interaction from someone else's um, perspective again. I, the book doesn't do that that often, but it has done it in the past. So it's possible we'll do that. But but regardless, I think we um, we the book chose to show this um this interaction, you know, first through the eyes of Tattletail. And I was wondering what your thought of that are. This, this very important to a character we're very concerned about interaction is seen from afar first. Yeah. Um, I guess like we would have been seeing it from Victoria's point of view. And I kind of feel like I already know what Victoria would be thinking. So 
like we gain more like on net by seeing it from Tattletale's point of view because um otherwise otherwise the only thing that's added is Victoria's internal commentary, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Not not that that wouldn't be valuable, but but it, like I don't think we learned any, anything about Victoria from that. Um, and it, like it wouldn't have been bad if it had been that way, right? It wouldn't have been bad if we'd seen Victoria's inner thoughts. But um, I think we we stand to gain maybe a, a, a unique and interesting insight into Tattletale. I, I don't know. Like I, I just think it's stylistically interesting too. Like I, I don't, I, I can't readily think of like a complex reason to do it other than like I kind of just like that it was done this way, like yeah. aesthetically. <laughs> and I, I want to be um, like I'm not criticizing the decision. I I actually mm-hmm. think it's great um, because I, and I agree with you. I think. Tattletale's power in allows a particular insight into this interaction that Victoria would not have. And if the text does circle back to it again, which again, I don't know if it's going to do that or not, but if it does, then it offers us two different perspectives on it. And then we get to see, you know, here's what Tattletale thought of this interaction, this hesitance that, that quickly kind of goes away and there's real caring here. What if we see this from Victoria's perspective? What what if next we have a, a Sveta interlude and get to see it from how her she was thinking of it? What if we see it from Wells' perspective? I think there's a lot of opportunities here, and 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 seeing it from this removed perspective, especially with Tattletale's kind of like bitterness towards yeah. companionship, I think does right. does serve a, a very interesting purpose, um, and I and I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the main reason to have it here is that this whole chapter is about her lack of human connection. And here she's she's observing their difficulty with human connection, which is then surmounted. Yeah. yeah. And then she has like a level of bitterness about it. So yeah. it fits in with what we're doing both tone wise and and concept theme wise in this in this chapter. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I do like when our interlude chapters kind of circle around the events of the main story. Like there, mm-hmm. there's interlude chapters that kind of exist entirely independently and, and they go on on their own and they don't touch a story. But I do like when these kind of hover around the current events, it makes it feel like it's not just a one-off. It makes it feel like it's, um, it's, it's still in the same world and it's just, we've just pivoted a little bit to a different point of view. I like that a lot. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Because then, then that, that allows you to, when you go back to the pr- protagonist, you're, you're seeing with like a wider lens, you're, you're imagining things from the perspective of that person who now you have a little copy of them installed in your brain too. Yeah. Yeah. So Tattletale's snooping is interrupted by our surveillance, uh, (laughs) counter surveillance tinker who says, hi, uh, just before Tattletale pushes a big red button that kills her computer, probably literally. Yeah. And she almost moves faster than light (laughs) to cut the power off. She's like, I move faster than the lights came back. I'm like, damn, that's yeah. real. That's real fast. No, I think it just shows like the the level of threat that she perceives Kenzie as. Like, she almost just hacked the Undersiders. That would have been crazy. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that like now, despite her exhaustion and despite the fact that she literally can't work anymore because she destroyed her computer, she crawls into bed and then she just like thinks and plans for yeah. probably hours. Can't work. Might as well go work. Um, yep. and, and there's more beats here that, that, that focus on her loneliness. She's, she talks about her friend that helped her with the server stuff that then immediately, like almost as she realized she referred to them as a friend, she immediately like 
like counters with, well, he was just pretending to be my friend and, and, and I, I let him pretend. It's just like so like you don't want to you don't want to give anyone the benefit of the doubt, including yourself. Like it's it's yeah. so depressing. Yeah. And then, of course, the text has to emphasize that she climbs into a bed that has room for three people in it. Oh, but she's alone. I love that. I didn't yeah. catch that. Yeah. yeah. No, that's perfect. Wow. No, that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. So but late. But then snap forward later next morning she's surrounded by villains and chaos and tension and things are much better hooray yay fucking sharks man yeah worst so you've got the heartbroken kids being their typical level of like adding complexity to the situation the group seems to be like constantly on the verge of murdering someone or or maybe it's all just a joke, though. Ha <laughs> ha. Hilarious. Yeah. The Heartbroken have been like this thing that's been in the back of my head since we learned about their involvement with Imp and the rest of the Undersiders. And you're like, oh, is this going to could this go badly? And, and I think the book is the book diving into us and focusing on this now is really great. Like, it's so hectic. All these people in your lives make things like crazy. And, and there's a lot of like good fun, quote unquote, going on. But as Tattletale makes it clear here with her whole speech about I wonder who in the Undersiders is going to kill who first. Um, these guys are even in, in the midst of their fun, always on the verge of like going too far, like always, like perpetually. And you can never really be relaxed around them. Yeah, right. They're, they're a wild card. They, they remind me of of like a, a kind of genre twist, almost like the Slaughterhouse-Nine, where it's like superheroes, but group of unhinged, creepy children. <laughs> right. Which I'm not sure if that's a genre, but it's definitely a thing. It is now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> One of the things that really stood out to me, though, is is as much as she's now surrounded by people, um, the only one that seems to really like talk to her as a person and not as Tattletail commander of this group is Chicken Little. So yeah. she's surrounded by all these people, but she's still, in essence, alone. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if I if I like have the certainty to call this out or to say like, this is what was happening. But it seemed to me that the, it seemed to me that the, um, heartbroken would like, would defer to Tattletail, but Tattletail is not going to throw her weight around to defend chicken little because that kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. Which, which means that they're kind of like, she keeps them in check. Yeah. Did you have that perception? Yeah. I, I kind of okay. get that. Yeah. 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 Which again is isolating herself from them. Like she doesn't have any peers. In, yeah. in this whole group. Um, yeah. And it seems like Imp isn't here. Yeah. Not that we would know. Haha. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but like the, the point being that Imp is kind of the one who actually usually takes care of them. Right. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, for example, talking about their behavior, they're playing some kind of fun game where maybe they're going to murder chicken little. Uh, no, it turns out they're just going to kiss him. Uh, he shouldn't have been worried or maybe they're going to kill him later. I, I don't know. <laughs> Um, like for example, you soldier, Samuel said, for the kid's sake, you're going to need to draw your gun. If I give the signal, shoot the kid I point at only if I give the signal, if you fuck this up, all the rest of us will come after you. How fun. Wouldn't you like to participate in these games? Yeah. Yeah. It's like everyone knows they're playing a game, but at the same time, some of them might not be playing a game and anyone standing there doesn't actually know if it's going to go stop being a game soon. And it, like, it's like Tattletail isn't even sure, right? Like she yeah. thinks we're good but um yeah you well, never know yeah what she says like specifically she's like they are actually full of shit they they they're, they're sit like this isn't some kind of like clever 
test, they're they're just sending mixed signals and not being very like responsible with their behavior, and and it's and it is chaotic. Yeah, like, yeah. It's uh, it's not. And and she's like, well, whatever. Jake and Little's gonna have to learn to deal with it. Yeah, I I, I love this whole thing. I love Tattletale watching it. Like I love like there's moments where you know chicken little controls the birds and and tattletale gets wistful for a second because he like sees something in um in uh in his movements that maybe you'll be like taylor and it's like it's not the same though it's 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 a lesser approximation i love all the heartbroken personalities playing off each other i love the fact that that imp is there matt she's there Uh uh-huh she's there there's a there's a disembodied arm floating around Uh uh-huh yeah, that that somehow doesn't have anything that that people notice. Yeah, that's just totally cool. It. We're just cool about just a random arm. Um, yeah, I, I love I love like <laughs> Chastity is there, like who is someone who really likes whips. Like like yeah. it's nothing to do with her power. She just really likes whips. Like there's like we we barely get time with any of these people, um, but we get enough to understand like w- there's so many different personalities there's so many new names we learn so many new people but we get like just enough of their personalities to understand a large number of these and that's tough to do in a, in a short amount of time like I, I i i wasn't that confused going into this considering the number of new names we drop no yeah that's a good point i hadn't even like remembered i mean i hadn't even like noticed that i that i have a sense of these characters even yeah. though we've um i mean some of them i think we've just met some of them um we've known before yeah i'm not sure exactly yeah but i'm sure we'll figure it out mm-hmm. so as tattletale watches the heartbroken at at their play uh tattletale is repeatedly reminded of alec yeah it's god it's so heartbreaking uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. um yeah like and this is what we were talking about before that she's kind of stuck like she's in she's constantly she sees the past everywhere and i think this kind of i was trying to think of how this slots into our whole theme about like moving forward or you know you know living in the past or or like completely unwilling to look forward like this type of thing and i think she's kind of stuck in the middle there right like where she's she can't she can't move on beyond like she can't move on beyond her original trauma um, and, and how that's reflecting through each and every one of these characters. She feels like she's failed. She sees Alec. She feels like Alex dead. She sees Taylor and people Taylor's quote unquote dead. Um, and it's just like, she's stuck and it's so, it's so tragic. Yeah. Yeah. But at least we have, you know, some little, uh, what's the word? Silver linings, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, Chicken Little notices something in the truck up ahead, which I feel like I should have caught on. Like, why did he notice it? You know, like, I feel like I, I, I should have guessed what it was, but yeah. I didn't. He noticed uh, and, it through, and, not through his eyes, but through his bird feelings. So. Yes, exactly. And Tattletale <laughs> walks him uh, there, just him and her and, and Snuff, I think, uh, to give him his birthday present. And on the way, they have a little discussion. Chicken Little asks why Tattletale makes time for him and takes care of him. And she kind of tries to play it off that she remind that uh, he reminds her of Taylor, um, and we see that like it's more that they both like Taylor and Aiden both remind her of her brother, and she kind of is aware of this fact. Yeah, and she like successfully like avoids the question by saying, "Look, here's a giant bird. Happy birthday." <laughs> um, yeah, but I think the Chicken Little is, you know, kind of the hinge on which Tattletale's entire character turns right now right like there's this kid we we see her later she calls 
she calls him, you know, her third chance. She's over two so far. And this is her 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 chance to finally do this right, to finally protect someone. Um, and she she like it's so like it's so caught up in the same stuff she was doing before. And I wonder, Matt, I mean, do you think we've talked about how she's kind of like stuck? Do you think she's learned from her, you know, quote unquote failure with Taylor? Or is she just making the same mistake she made before over again? Um, I, I don't see much evidence that she has learned. Like she doesn't think she's making mistakes, right? Like she, she's just like, well, people yeah. like, like, like it's good that she wants to protect people. Like that's a good impulse. Yeah. It's, it's just, it is, it, it, she takes it to an obsessive degree and her power pushes her to take it to an, to an even yeah. more obsessive degree. That's really the problem, I think. Yeah. And I wonder the, the, well, we'll get to it. Let's, we'll get to the end of the chapter when we get there. So let's, let's talk about yeah. that in a bit, but. So I like the the text says it was good having people around. Even the people she was used to were more alive as a group, uh, as the group was more complete. It was tempting in a dangerous way to know that a crisis brought everyone together and she could so very easily consciously or not play her role in creating them. I wonder if this is going to pay off in some way by (laughs) by the end of this chapter. Yeah. I mean, the fact that she's, well, okay, good point. I was going to (laughs) say the fact that she's aware of it means that, she can control it, but no, that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Um, so they return uh, to what is shaping up to be like a pretty large gathering of capes with Aiden's uh, host eagle in tow. Is he going to fly around on the giant bird? I don't think it's quite big enough. I but want it to be. Yeah, I want it to be too. Just like Taylor gets a flying bug, Aiden gets a flying bird. That's yeah, how these things I mean, work. I mean, they may have actually hunted humans, so it's, that's... It's just like Taylor. Yeah, yeah. I think these things I think those things can pick up like pretty heavy things. So I think yeah. in theory, it might not be like riding on its back, but maybe just like chilling in its talons. That's not at yeah. all scary. Look, maybe yeah. I just think like we're, we're just talking about how she learned from her quote unquote mistakes with Taylor, it's like it's time to give this guy a, a bird to fly. Like it's just yeah. like it's just like repeating the same thing over and over right. again. Time to give him a scary thing that makes him scarier and more formidable in, yeah. in combat. That, that'll keep him safe. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like uh, it probably yeah. will. Like it probably it will, but it's also like escalation, right? It's mm-hmm. it's like I know I know you like it's kind of a fool's errand to try to keep a pair of a pair of human out of a fight. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. That's so the thing is here, like, complicated. like we're, we're talking about like how she learned from her mistakes. I, like, I don't know what the solution here is, right? Like, right. I, like how she says, okay, here's this this young parahuman, and he remi- reminds me of my brother and of Taylor. I have to make sure this kid is okay. I have to make sure yeah. this kid. I have to protect him. She says it later in the chapter. I have to protect him from other people. I have to protect him from himself. I have to do this right this time. Okay, from an outside like perspective that we get like as the readers of this book that know everything quote unquote how would someone do that and and be successful and i don't know the answer to that question right yeah exactly and also i want to point out like we're not pretending that it's not awesome that aiden has a giant prehistoric eagle oh it's so cool it's it's, it's, it's clearly awesome yeah um the the point the, the point is like is this is this serving what Tattletale actually wants to accomplish? I agree. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. very uncertain, which which tells me like, well, 
it's a hard position to be in. Yeah, I mean, so is she. She's she's very uncertain about this whole thing. And yeah, and in her efforts to do this, she's again, you know, isolating herself and her efforts to help him. She's hurting herself again and again and again and again. Yeah. Yep. So as they enter the the big meeting, she realizes that the greater undersiders power block is intimidating everyone else. And she has her group split up to kind of decrease the intimidation factor. Yeah. And that's like the, the crazy thing about this, Matt, is, is she's wrong, right? She's mm-hmm. wrong about all this. She's wrong about the message that her group together would send. She's wrong about March being there. She says she was 80 percent sure that March was going to show up to this meeting. Not there. Um, she's wrong about what the gathering was like. It is it is not the thing she thought it was going to be. And she's not equipped to deal with the thing that it's becoming. She's yeah. she, she's she was hoping to manage and control this thing. And it's not the thing she thought it was. And suddenly she's like, I'm not prepared for this. Yeah, no, I'm glad you pointed out the fact that she's she's wrong. Cause like usually when she's wrong, it's because she has bad Intel and it's very tempting to believe that the reason that she has bad Intel is that someone's feeding her bad Intel to try to, to try to cause her to make a, a misstep. Um, and we know that, you know, she's being like hunted by March. So there's some immediate candidates for who could be doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's also possible she's just running herself ragged and making mistakes. Yeah. Um, but either either option is is foreboding. Yeah, absolutely. So the villains are scared and they're scared because of the quote unquote return to order brought on by, among others, Breakthrough. Um, also, of course, the Wardens and, and the other groups. These villains want blood, uh, and there's just too much anger here, like you said, for Tattletale to deal with, even with her powers and her knowledge. So she just decides she's just going to let this play out, whatever it is. Yeah. So what do you think about this, Matt? I I, I thought long and hard about this because I think, like I said at at the beginning of this chapter, I think I understand why she makes this decision. I think... At the end of this chapter, we see like one of one of the recurring beats of this is how tired she is. She's just tired. She's tired of managing. She's tired of fighting. Like one of the things she says is she's tired of fighting with her shard. Her shard wants conflict. Her shard wants escalation. Her shard wants all these things. And this decision at the end seems to be like going with what the shard was want. I am go. I am not going to try to mitigate this. I am not going to try to stop it. I am going to let it happen. And it's going to lead to escalation. The end of the the interlude is this anger that threatened to stoke the worst fears of the anti-parahumans and empower and vindicate the do-gooders she would let it happen um like so so not only are we going to get like the the people that hate capes are just going to be vindicated in their hate of capes the capes that hate the bad capes are just going to be vindicated in their um their hatred of those people um they're probably going to go full force now because this, this riot is going to sweep through and there's going to be so much more, no hold, no holding back violence. It's just, it's going to be chaos. And she's basically saying, okay, I'm going to let that happen. Yeah. I have other things to do. Yeah. And I mean, part of her rationale, I think it's crucial to say is like, she's not just like, I mean, yeah, she is tired, but her rationale isn't like, I'm going to let this happen because I'm tired. It, what, what what happens is she, she, it says she looked back at Chicken Little. When she had brought him under her wing, she told herself she would do it right. She would help him, save him, and save him from himself if she had to. She was zero for two. If she couldn't get, get it right and save him, at least, then what? So the motivation is is like defensive, right? It's, yeah. it's still trying to keep people safe. Um, she's like, I don't want to get involved in this. 
I can't, I can't solve this. So I'm going to back off. I'm going to do what I can do elsewhere, but you know, it's a choice yeah. and, and it's going to have consequences. But it, it is, I mean, it is very, it is very tattletale. Like, I don't think, I don't know if Tattletale ever wanted to run a city. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's ever what she wanted. I feel like she, she ended up going down this route and sticking with this as long because, you know, that's a thing that Taylor wanted. This, this Taylor wanted to, to make the city better to help people. And, and she ended up like in order, in order to help Taylor in a way she feels she failed to help her brother and failed to understand her brother and failed to protect her brother. She, she went along with this thing. And now she's kind of, taking a situation where I'm going to step back from this management because what I care about most, what I care about more than, than all this violence and, and the, the potential people that could die in this is protecting this kid. And there's something honorable in that. Right. But there's also like, you're basically saying I'm willing to, to turn away from this when I maybe have the power to mitigate it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that nicely leads into our discussion question today, Scott. Yeah. Which is, uh, in the light of the impending wave of anger that's going to sweep over Earth Gimmel, Tattletale elects to do nothing. Discuss what the novel could be exploring with this choice. When is it ethical to step back from a bad thing you see coming? I That's going to be a very interesting question, I think. Yeah, and, and like, feel free to broaden the scope of it. Like, yeah. like not don't, don't feel limited to just talking about Tattletale's choice, but more like the nature of kind of fiendishly um, wicked choices like this, where it's like, there's no obvious right answer. Right. 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 Like there, I mean, that, that's the thing is there's no guarantee that her, her being involved could actually make things better and it might make things worse. You right. never know. So yeah. Yeah. All right. So that is it. That that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward. Uh, you guys are all part of this show. So feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at Scott daily 85 and Matt's is at more than a, I didn't come up with a joke. <laughs> When you're okay. Mordena, when your mind goes blank and yeah. you're hoping it comes up with something and you, yeah. it fails you, you failed yeah. me, mind. Mordena, your power is, you're tired and, and your power is not working. Yes. You're just too tired and you've just been taking care of the Twitter handle problem for too long. <laughs> you're just tired of it. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And always, you can find all the other shows we do over at doofmedia.com. This week, uh, we took off last week for Thanksgiving, but we're back now. Both of our recurring weekly shows are back. We have a new episode of Doofcast that's coming out Friday morning that'll be talking about the Fast and the Furious franchise um, specifically, I think we're going to try to, to wrangle this big eight movie thing down to just talking about, uh, the, the, sh- the rock and the shift that the rock brought to the series. Um, we're also having a new episode of out to view where we talk about underrated cartoons that I, I talk about treasure planet and I love that oh. movie of yeah, treasure planet. A fun, um, a fun one. but also Matt this Friday, it's a busy week. This Friday we have our monthly book club is meeting once again, Friday at nine 30 to discuss Ian M. Banks, The Player of Games. I think it's going to be a really great conversation. It's a really fascinating book. I can't wait to to really dive into it. 
yeah, I'm super looking forward to all of those conversations. Fun fact, Matt, um, mm-hmm. that book not available in any Barnes and Nobles in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Fascinating. I like I know like it's not like the most popular science fiction book ever, but I thought the culture series was fairly like well-regarded and popular that I really expected it to be in a bookstore. And yeah. I, I was surprised that it wasn't. I am also surprised to hear this because everyone knows about the culture at least. Yeah. Hmm. Weird. Yeah. So um, if you want to support any of these 48 shows, that we just described <laughs> consider donating to our patreon account patreon.com slash doof media you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford supporting us on patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and yearly costume contests q a sessions access to live streams of our recording sessions and our excellent discord chat special thanks to new bidoofs matthew t and protean both at the one dollar level Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, guys. And I thank every one of you that continues to support us month after month. It means the world to us. This past week's was Thanksgiving, and we are so thankful for you and all of you that are listening. It's It, it absolutely means the world to us. Um, we can never be appreciative enough like yeah. of, of you guys. Yeah, we, uh, I really appreciate, you know, that, that, this get, that, that this can be part of my life. It, it's fantastic. Yeah. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review, or just sharing the podcast with like everyone you know. Do that too. Mm-hmm. This week's review comes from Zizavan, who gives us five stars and says, Worm and Ward have so much depth and richness that no first-time reader is ever going to catch all the amazing things baked into them. Luckily, you don't have to, because Matt and Scott are here to break it all down with style that is highly insightful and entertaining. I started listening to the podcast after finishing Worm and have been keeping up alongside the Ward live updates. So there's no bad time to start. I agree with that. No bad time to start. Start yeah. now. Like, it, it feels ironic saying start now, because if you're listening to this, you obviously have already. Um, yeah, well, start over. <laughs> start, start over. Start over. Matt, my favorite reviews are the ones that just mostly talk about how great these books are, because it, like, yeah. makes me feel better about, like, the fact that we're piggybacking off of these amazing works. And, like, like I think 90% of why our show is interesting at all is because the thing we're talking about is so amazing. So, right. Um, so th- thanks for those reviews. Thank you, everyone who takes the time to send in those rating and reviews. They really do help us. Um, the more reviews we have, especially five star ones, uh, the, the, the more legit of a podcast we look like on those services, which is how you get noticed. That's right. Uh, well, that's all we got for this week. Uh, next week, more polarize. Uh, you think we're approaching the end of this arc yet, Scott? No, I don't. I think we still got quite a bit to go in this whole thing. I suspect you're right. 